Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning. So very good uh, to see all of you here this morning. And what a great question uh, Wes asked us. Because of Jesus, what? What does that look like for us? I think one of the things that we can say is that because of Jesus, we get to celebrate this season of Advent as a time of hope, as a time where we get to celebrate the meaning, the true meaning of what it means for Jesus to have come to this earth, to have died, to have rose again, and to give us new life. And faith is our Advent theme for today, as we talked about earlier this morning. And, uh, you know, we are also, of course, in the book of Revelation during this Advent season. And we are actually not just in the book of Revelation, but in the place in Revelation where we are talking a lot about God's judgment. And so this morning, we're going to be talking a little bit more about how these two themes go together, our faith and God's judgment. But as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions as we begin. Uh, We were, we of course read from Hebrews chapter 11 as our faith focus earlier this morning. The Beldons led us off with that. And there are a couple of phrases that really jumped out in those, in those readings. One phrase was this, the assurance of things hoped for. If I were to ask you the question of what comes to mind when you think about the assurance of things hoped for, what does that mean for you? What jumps to mind immediately as we talk about the assurance of things hoped for? What are those things that you hope for? Secondly, we read from verse 6, which says that, uh, that God rewards those who seek him in faith. So if we were to ask, what does it mean for God to reward us or to reward you in faith? What exactly does that look like for you? We were in Revelation chapter 8 last week. We talked about the fact that hope comes through God's judgment. It's one of the things that we see in the book of Revelation. That in order for us to have hope, it comes through God's judgment. So it's only through God's judgment we can arrive at the place where we actually have the reality of the things that we hope for. We actually have the reward of Christ's salvation, which we see described in the book of Revelation as the new heaven and the new earth, what we might often call heaven as the eternal state. Now, that was what we talked a lot about last week in chapter 8, and I realize that chapter 8 is one of those difficult passages, one of those difficult chapters that we come across in the book of Revelation. In some ways, it may have been confusing to you. I think I even confused myself a couple of times last week because I was up here teaching. Um, Not really, but it might have seemed like I was confusing myself based on some of the things that uh, we went through last week. But here's the thing. I think with all of that being said, as tough as Revelation chapter 8 is, what we're looking at in Revelation chapter 9 is even more difficult in some ways. We're going to come across a lot of symbolism. We're going to come across a lot of things that are really deep and thick as it relates to God's judgment. And so one of the things that I want to do in all of this is to be able to take a kind of a big picture look at the book of Revelation to zoom out a little bit because we can get lost in these chapters that are in the middle of the book and kind of get bogged down. And so what I want to do is remind us of where we're at, where we've been, and where we're going. I think it's a good opportunity to do that. At the end of this chapter, we're going to be about 40% of the way through the book, almost halfway through, so it's fitting for us to kind of just take a breath and assess where we've been, where we are, and where we're going in this book. But uh, one of the things that biblical scholars have identified is that the book of Revelation plays out a lot like a story. And uh, one, one scholar in particular by the name of Michael Gorman, who's written a book on, or written a book on the book of Revelation, talks about uh, the story of Revelation unfolding in what he calls four acts. So just like four acts of a play or four acts of a story. And then he also includes a prologue to this as well. I think it's a really helpful model for us to follow. So I want to I kind of introduce that to us here this morning. And what he says is that the prologue is really the background of the book. 
which is actually a, a, a description of the story of the Bible. So the prologue is essentially the story of the Bible, what the Bible claims is all of human history. And he defines it this way. He says, it begins with God creating humanity to live in a state of worship of God, communion with others, and harmony with creation, right? That's the original design in God's creation. As we get to the the church age, uh, on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, what we find is that Jesus was faithful in his life, death, and resurrection so that the good news of the gospel can be preached throughout the world and people can respond in faith to what God is doing to redeem all of the creation that he created to be good, including our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and yes, the goodness of creation. Satan, however, is still active in this world opposing God's purposes and God's people in the world. And one of the ways that he does this is, as Gorman says, to seduce key human beings to be complicit in creating an anti-culture of idolatry, evil, and chaos, what he also calls a culture of death, which is identified as Babylon here in the book of Revelation. Now, we haven't gotten to a description of Babylon yet, but we will later on in the book. And what he's telling us is that Babylon is representative of this kind of anti-culture, this death culture that exists in our world that entraps people in idolatry and evil and those kinds of things, okay? So, with that prologue, that background, then we move to Act, to act 1. Act 1 is kind of the immediate context of this book, where Satan is directing Babylon to oppose God's purposes and God's people in the original faithful church of the first century, seducing those to compromise their faith according to the culture and to be pressured by persecution to give up on their faith and to turn their back on Jesus and to be complicit with what is happening in the world. That leads us to Act 2. In the the face of the pressure that those who are in the church have to compromise their faith, which obviously still exists with us today, God gives this vision to, to John and tells him to write this book down. And then, of course, the, the vision, the revelation is the, is the, is the content of, of this book that we're reading. And we see in the original, uh, the opening chapters of the book, chapters one through three, this vision of Jesus where Jesus gives the seven messages to the church and the message that he has for each church is to overcome. And then we get to chapters four and five and we're told why we can trust Jesus' words as we see him as the slain lamb who has overcome sin and death and evil by being slain on our behalf, right? And so it's out of that then that he tells his church, his people to overcome in the same way. Act two leads to act three, which is the act that we're in right now. And Gorman simply calls this God judges, and it's the biggest part of the book, covering basically the span of chapter six all the way to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And listen to how Gorman describes this act. He says this, the powerful idolatrous culture of death Babylon is under divine judgment and doomed to fall. God and the Lamb begin that judgment now, resulting in the swift and certain demise. This is the longest act in Revelation, consisting of multiple scenes and uh, and comprising the bulk of the narrative. But it can be summarized in just a few words. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That comes from uh, chapter 18, verse 2. Not only does God defeat Satan in Babylon, but God defeats death itself. 
As we talked about last week, one of the main reasons why people tend to avoid the book of Revelation is because of these passages right here. Because so much of it is about judgment. We don't know what to do with it. Like, how do we understand it? It's so difficult to understand and make sense of all the symbols and images that we see that just don't make any sense. How do we put it all together? And, and when we get to this place, there's also the underlying reality that when we're talking about God's judgment, it's hard for us to stomach the reality that this is actually what it looks like because it's pretty harsh in a lot of ways. It's really difficult to stomach. But one thing, of course, that we understand, as we talked about last week, is that there is this one at last act in Revelation. And all of these judgment things are getting to a place where God can remove sin and evil from his good creation and bring it to Act 4, which is the final resting place of this book, and to the eternal state. And Act 4 is described this way. Gorman titles the act, God Renews. And he describes it as the act of God's redemption where Babylon, the city of oppression and death, is replaced by the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth. It's a place where pain and sorrow are absent, a time where oppression and death are gone. The healing of the nations begins and humanity is restored to God's original intentions for worship, communion, and harmony. God and the Lamb come to dwell permanently with a renewed humanity. And we've talked about in this series, one of the defining images of the book of Revelation is this mysterious scroll that's introduced to us in Revelation chapter 5, and it's kind of unwrapped for us in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. And what we see happening there is this picture of God's redemptive purposes. In other words, what this is, is we're going to put it in this language, it's the unfolding of all of the acts until we get to act four. There is hope in this because God's bringing it all to an end, but what we also see is that this scroll is not completely unveiled and unrolled until all of the seals are broken, all of the judgments that lead up to this final place. And so what we see in God's redemptive plan is that he's removing everything that will not go into the eternal state, things like sin and evil and death and suffering. And as Revelation chapter 5 says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And not only the tears that we've cried in this life, but the things that cause tears or may cause tears in our experience, things like death and suffering and evil and brokenness in creation. Now the hope that we look forward to, though, is more than just a removal of all the broken things in this world. It's actually the introduction of all the very best things into creation for eternity. And that's another thing that we see in the judgment of God. We see God's character, God's character kind of being unleashed throughout all of creation. When we see uh, in Scripture, you may have seen before, uh, the, the, the call for God's glory or the celebration of God's glory being all over creation. That's actually a reference to God's character being extended all throughout the creation. We looked at these character aspects last week that we see in God's judgment, that God is sovereign, God is wise, God is loving, God is good, God is faithful, God is righteous, God is holy, God is just. This is just a sampling of the character aspects that we see of God in his judgment activity. And as we talk about it, what we're saying is that God's wisdom one day will be unimpeded throughout creation, that God's love, that God's goodness, that God's faithfulness, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, all over the face of the earth one day and for eternity. That's the hope that we have. And as we talk about faith today, it's important to realize that faith is actually trusting in the faithfulness of God. Because it's one thing to say that we believe all these things about who God is. These are characteristics about God. But it's another thing to be able to say that I have faith in these things. I trust in these things. I've experienced these things. And that's biblical faith in the God whom the Bible reveals to us. So, 
With all that being said, let's talk a little bit about what chapter 9 is about today. Last week we saw the four trumpet, first four trumpet judgments. This week we're going to see two more, trumpet judgments 5 and 6. Last week I said the other three are in chapter 9, I misspoke. It's actually two in this chapter, and we won't see the seventh one until chapter 11 in Revelation. But I think as we do, I think one thing that we need to remember is that what we are seeing is a vision that represents symbols that John sees. There's high, high symbolism that's happening throughout this book, especially in the visions of John, especially as it has to do with judgment. What that means is this, is that John is seeing in his vision symbols that he's communicating to us. Not necessarily, and these symbols represent things that are happening on the earth and happening in human history. It doesn't mean that these symbols are actually on the earth. In other words, when John says he sees four horses riding out at the beginning of those seal judgments, right? It doesn't mean that there are literally going to be large horses of four different colors that are riding across the earth with famine following them and war following them and death following them, right? It means that John sees that in his vision and then that represents things like famine and war and killing and injustice and all the things that are happening on the earth. I call that, I say that because chapter 9 is full of this imagery. And we want to remember that these are symbols that represent a, a reality that's happening on the earth as we read through this. I, I also do want to say this, is that Revelation chapter 9 is one of those chapters, I think, where the book of Revelation gets its reputation for being this kind of scary, fearsome book. Because it is, in a lot of ways, uh, frightening images that we're going to encounter here. But we've got a lot to unpack, and so we're going to talk about what that imagery uh, represents in a lot of ways. But I want to begin, before we get into chapter 9, by reading the last verse of chapter 8, because chapter 8, verse 13, is really the introduction to what happens after this. It's an introduction, in other words, to chapter 9. And it says this, and this is John, describing what he sees in his vision, and he says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets and the three, uh, that the three angels are about to blow. Now, what we can tell from this announcement is that the three judgments that follow are going to be different than the first four that we saw that were trumpet judgments. They're given more attention here. They're given more description. And as the eagle, this talking eagle that's flying in the air in John's vision, says, whoa, 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 this is a communication of, uh, uh, these words represent, of course, in Scripture, judgment that's about to come on, on, on evil in a, in a pretty profound way, in a pretty profound and deep way. And so what we see here is that these are about to be some pretty intense judgments, and certainly they are. The other thing we see is that because it's an eagle, uh, an eagle represents kind of a predatory bird, really the apex predator of the sky. It's looking down on the world below, almost kind of like sizing up its prey. This, the judgments are kind of directed towards uh, those who are called earth dwellers here. Uh, G.K. Beale kind of puts, puts it in a very pointed way. He says this, The picture of Revelation 8.13 is of an eagle hovering over its prey. Unbelieving earth dwellers are the prey. Okay, so what that tells us essentially is that these judgments are aimed at those who are considered to be earth dwellers, those who are not sealed by the Lamb, those who are not dwellers in the throne room of God, but those who are dwelling on the earth. They make their home in the, in the earth. They worship the idols of this world and the earth and those kinds of things as compared and contrasted with those who are sealed by the Lamb in the heavenly throne room of God, okay? So that's an accurate interpretation. That's how we're going to go with this. We're going to go into Re uh, Revelation chapter 9 now in reading all this. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, it's a long chapter, so stay with me as much as you can, 
And we got a lot to unpack, and we're going to unpack it after we're done reading through it, okay? All right. So, it says in verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were, to- they were told not to harm the grass or, uh, of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And then in verse 13, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color, of fire, and of sapphire, and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worship of demons, idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or talk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. All right, so if you haven't heard me say it already, welcome to the book of Revelation. (laughs) There's a lot to unpack here, and this is how we're going to do it this morning. Uh, We're going to do it in a way that we've approached it throughout this book, which is we're not going to spend a ton of time you know, kind of picking through every single image that we see and explaining how it could be interpreted four different ways and every different symbol. We're going to talk about more in general the why question of why this happens here, why this is given to us in the book of Revelation, and why it matters for us. But, of course, in order to do that, we need to be able to at least um, interpret some of the bigger symbols that we see here and, and, and put them in context to understand why they are here. So we're going to talk on the one hand a little bit about the symbolism and then also why it matters and what it means, okay? Does that sound good? You guys still with me here this morning? Okay, all right, so here we go. 
So the fifth trumpet judgment starts off this chapter at the very beginning. And what we see is when the fifth angel grabs that trumpet and blows it, that John immediately sees a star that is an angel falling from heaven. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that there was a very similar image in the third trumpet that was blown. And what we said was that, what, how, we, how we interpreted that is the same way I think we should interpret this one, which is the star represents an angel, which is all over scripture, especially in Revelation, and that angel falling from heaven should be pictured as Satan, or at least one of Satan's kind of strong beings, one of sa- the satanic beings. And we saw that uh, in reference to Isaiah chapter 14 last week. We can also see it in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus' words are recorded as saying this, I saw Satan as a star falling from heaven. And when Jesus says this, he's referring to the judgment of Satan that will come as a result of Jesus' resurre- victory in the resurrection. Right? And so what we see here is then a play out of that, Satan falling from heaven as a star, as an angel. And as we also see then what this star, what this angel does, it gives us also a little bit more insight into his identity as well. He is given a key, and his key goes to unlock this. It says shaft in my translation. It might say abyss in your translation. In either way, it's, the, it's the, this bottomless pit where all of these things that look like locusts begin to come out, right? And John describes this swarm of locusts, and they're just, like the way he describes it is just mind-blowing, right? They have like lion's teeth and women's hair, and, and all these, and, but, but the biggest thing is that they have Tails that sting like scorpions. That's the biggest thing we want to remember. All these other things like breastplate, they're going out for battle, those kinds of things. Again, this is not meaning that there's going to be this swarm of locusts that happen at a certain time and for five months they're going to go out and sting all those people who are not Christians, right? This is not what is being told to us here. It's symbolic representing something else. And what it represents is this. These locusts we can probably take as being representative of of demons or the legions of demons under Satan's command. He's the one who is identified as the king who unlocks that. He's the king of the demons. Apollyon means the destroyer. It comes from a, a Greek word that means to destroy. It's also the root word for the Greek god Apollos. And it has to, or Apollo, and it has to do with this idea of him unleashing destruction on the earth through these locusts who represent demons. Now, because these demons are spiritual, we can, what we can actually, what we can assume and what we can kind of get to the place of is understanding that their attacks, their stings have to do with spiritual attacks. They have to do with things like spiritual darkness, deception, uh, those kinds of things. And in fact, if we go into, Ju- uh, into the history of Judaism, the Jews actually recognize the sting of scorpions as a spiritual attack, as spiritual darkness, as spiritual deception, and those kinds of things. And so it kind of all ties together here. And this picture that we get then is of these um, demons who are represented as, locu- uh, as locusts going out into the world for a certain period of time. We're told that it's five months. I don't think it's literally five months. Um, if we dig a little bit deeper, what we find out is that locusts, uh, the reason five months is used is that that's the typical life cycle of a locust. Or it's also the time where locusts were active in the Mediterranean area, kind of d- devouring crops and that kind of thing. They would be active for about five months during the year devouring crops. And so what this communicates to us is there's a defined time and a defined purpose for these locusts, for these demons going out. And they inflict, or they, they, they afflict, I should say, those who are not sealed by the Lamb with continual spiritual darkness and blindness and deception. And there is a period of time where they're allowed to do that, probably longer than five months. In fact, 
Uh, this gives, a, in fact, as we, as we look at it, it gives us a little bit more context into what this looks like. And one important uh, point to see in all this is that the smoke represents judgment in all this, especially when smoke covers the sun and covers the light of the sky as it talks about from the very beginning. And so in this way, what we get is this picture of actually the judgment that is falling upon Satan and his demons spilling out into the world. This is what happens. They've been judged in the bottomless pit, and that judgment is pouring out and spilling out into the world through their influence. Okay? Their judgment happens at the resurrection of Jesus and continues on through the end until final judgment. Now, G.K. Beale explains kind of this complex idea by bringing it all together, and he says this. As a result of Christ's death and resurrection, the devil and his legions have begun to be judged, right? That's them being in that bottomless pit. And now the effect of their judgment is about to be unleashed on unbelieving humanity who give their ultimate allegiance to the devil. So, just like all the other trumpet judgments and the seal judgments that come before these, if we're asking when these judgments and when these events are taking place, we have our answer, I think, right there. It happens between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus 2,000 years ago in human history, the beginning of the church when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and when Jesus returns at some point in the future to establish his kingdom on the earth, all right? Now we can, there's all kinds of interpretations about when this happens and how it takes place and is there a period of time when this just happens and that happens and that kind of thing. But the thing that we can say is that these judgments happen at some point in this what we call the church age, which is the age that we are in right now, which is also the age that the first century church was in as well. We share that together. And so the idea of all this is that this is hugely relevant to understanding the way things happen in our world, and we can actually see this operating right now. So the ju- and so what we see here, and we're going to explain a little bit more about why this is relevant when we get to the question of why. But I want to, before we get to that, I want to descri- talk about the second judgment that we see in this chapter, which is the sixth trumpet judgment. This judgment is described as coming from the altar before God with the four horns on it. If you're familiar with uh, kind of old, the Old Testament description of the temple, you may realize that the altar of sacrifice is in the court of the temple in Jerusalem, and it actually has four horns on it. We got a pic- I brought a picture of it with me. It looks something like that, right? And what you see here is, of course, a lamb who has been slain, who, is being sa- who, has, who has been sacrificed, burning there on the altar. And if you can look closely and see, you might not be able to see it in detail, but you can see there are four horns at each one of the corners of that altar. And what this represents, it was designed to represent at least a couple of things. First of all, the four horns of the altar represented covering and security and mercy for God's people. As they would see the lamb who is slain on top of that altar, they would remember that this is given for, the, for God's forgiveness of sin and those kinds of things. And of course, we see that in the throne room, the lamb who was slain. There's a lot of connection that's going on here. The other thing that the horns would represent, and it's represented in a couple of places in the Old Testament, at least one significantly, is that these horns represent also the judgment against idolatry. In Amos chapter 3, when God is confronting the Israelites regarding their idolatry, he tells them that he will cut off the horns of the altar. In other words, that he will cut off their covering and their protection because of his judgment on their idolatry. And so when we read through this and we have this idea in Revelation chapter 9, what we see is that the sixth judgment comes from the altar, which both affirms the covering of those who have been sealed by the Lamb who was slain, those who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus as the Lamb of God, and judgment that comes from this place against the idolaters who choose not 
to worship God and to dwell with God, the earth dwellers, okay? So, with that in mind, let's talk about what John actually sees in this vision. First of all, he sees four angels who then release this force, this military force that's described as soldiers who are mounted on horses, and John describes their number as like 10,000 times two times another 10,000. In other words, a number that he can't even count. We know that from Revelation when you get into those tens of thousands and myriads and all the rest. It's a number that's just too massive to count. The idea is that this is an insurmountable, overwhelming army that's coming from the Euphrates River. Now, it probably doesn't surprise us to realize that the Euphrates River also represents judgment in this case, right? The, the Israelites represent that in many, realize that in many cases uh, their, their enemies came from kind of like northeast, which was in the direction of the Euphrates River, um, in many cases to attack them and in some cases to lead them into ca- captivity. So the Euphrates River is represented as judgment. And this, 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 this military force is set there and it comes from this place Uh, near the Euphrates. Now the question immediately that comes to mind because we're told that what these soldiers do is that they kill a third of mankind, a third of humanity. And so the question becomes, who exactly are these soldiers? Are they literal soldiers? Are they some military force that's going to come at some point in time? And what does it mean that a third of the people die? Are those third of the people people who are covered by the Lamb? Are they, do they have the seal of God, or are they people who don't have the seal of God? Because every other trumpet judgment has been aimed at just those who don't have the seal of the Lamb on them, right? So let's start with that first question there. Does that mean that this is a literal army that's coming forward at some point in history, at some designated time? I think, uh, I think we can answer that by saying, no, these are not literal soldiers on literal horses, One reason for that is that, again, they're highly symbolic, almost ridiculously so again. Think about it. They have heads of lions, and they have tails of serpents with the mouth on the end of the tail uh, of of the serpent, right? And so they're designed to be symbolic. I think the other thing we can see is that in verse 18 and verse 20, they are described as those who bring plagues. They're described actually as plagues rather than literal soldiers. And so what are those plagues? Those plagues are the things that we've seen in the, judge, in the, in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. They're things like uh, uh, famine and disease and starvation and injustice and wars and killings and all the other things that we see that have happened throughout human history. And we're told that they're allowed to kill a third of humanity. Now, a third of humanity doesn't necessarily mean at one time that they're going to go out and maybe there's some kind of disease that kills a third of humanity, which is what? I think at this point, uh, what, what would that be, like three billion people or so all at once, right? That, I don't think we're supposed to interpret it that way. A third is in contrast to a full. In other words, it means a partial, that there are partial judgments that happen, and at any time in human history, you can look and see that there's some kind of a famine or war or some kind of genocide that's being enacted towards people that kills a mass amount of people, right? And I think what we're told there, what we can see there, is that this is a representation of what that looks like. It's in contrast to full judgment that will come eventually. Now the question though that remains then is who are these one-third of people? Are they Christians? Are they non-Christians? Are they those who are sealed, those who have not been sealed? What does that mean? And I I would say admittedly this is the most difficult question to answer in this entire passage. I don't have like a, a definitive answer but I will say there's things that we can use to clarify where that answer might come from or where we might get to that answer. First of all, um, one thing we realize is that, uh, is that those who are sealed might experience physical death. So this is referring to things like uh, plagues that are happening right now, 
We know that a plague that wipes out a, a, a huge uh, portion of mankind is, not, is also going to kill Christians as well, right? And so the question becomes then, how does this judgment affect those who are sealed? Well, it affects them in this way, that even though they may die physically, they don't actually incur the judgment of death because they have spiritual life or resurrection life. That just as the lamb who was slain on their behalf dies physically, but rises again and has resurrection life, he overcomes the judgment of death. So that even though a Christian might die physically even now, that they are not under the judgment of death. In fact, what they, what they rely on, of course, is the resurrection life of Christ beyond death. In which we see that physical death is actually an open door to greater blessing of being with God eternally. That's one way we can interpret this. And in the case of those who are unsealed, physical death does bring the curse of death because physical death brings spiritual death as well. Now, there's probably another way we can, another option for interpreting this vision is in reference to a time that some refer to as the rapture event, where there's a time where all of those who are sealed are taken up to be with Jesus, and the only ones who are left on the ground or on the earth are those who are not sealed, and that the the, the plagues and all those things that are described here, that army that goes forward that wipes out a bunch of people happens during that time so that none of the sealed are actually harmed. Look, either way, you can interpret this either way, but this is one of those things where it doesn't matter how we interpret it, what's most important for us to ask is why these judgments exist and what this looks like. And we're given the reason, at least an understanding of the reason, in the last two verses of this chapter. And what we read here is that in spite of all that has happened, in spite of all this judgment that takes place, that those who are the earth dwellers, the idolaters, that most of them, and in fact many of them, don't repent even after experiencing all the judgments that they've seen happen in front of them. They continue to do the things that they've done uh, prior to that. They, they're stealing sexual morality, they're worshiping the idols of this world, taking pleasures in the gold and silver of this world as their gods, those kinds of things. They're described in many different ways. Stealing, thievery, all those things. The end result is that they don't repent. In fact, in many ways, it, can, it causes their hearts to grow even harder. And as we said uh, uh, last week when we talked about judgment, one of the things that these judgments do is they reveal the hearts, they lay bare the hearts of those who experience them. So that they show us where our heart really lies. Does our heart really lie with the kingdom of God? Does our trust really rest and our faith really rest in the Lamb? Or does it rest in the idols of this world? Are we heaven dwellers, so to speak, or are we earth dwellers? Heaven dwellers who have made our home with God, or earth dwellers who have made our home with the idols of this world? In effect, in the end, what the trumpet judgments do is they draw a distinct line in the sand spiritually in terms of our allegiance to Jesus. Either you are with Jesus or you are against Jesus. And it's clearly shown. Everything is laid bare through these judgments. And as we see the judgments operating even in our world today, those who are sealed should see them as evidence, actually, that God is in control. And here's why this is important to understand this. When we, think, when we see these things happening, whether it's a famine, whether it's a suffering, whether it's a disease, a virus that will go, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that spreads all over the earth that, and, and something that we're experiencing right now, a pandemic, all of these things that we go through in this world that cause suffering and death and evil, right? We tend to think to ourselves, at least our first reaction, is that God is not active in this, that God is nowhere to be found, that God is kind of asleep at the wheel and he's allowing all these things to happen, um, outside of his control. Really what we see in the judgments is that these are actually part of, God, of Jesus's and God's activity in the world to bring about his redemptive purposes. These judgments that happen 
are actually things that God is sending out into the world. If you look at even at the even in this vision here, right? What allows Satan to be able to unlock the abyss, to be able to allow all of those locusts to run all over the earth? It's a key that he is given. Who gives him that key? I think we can I think I think we can assume that this is Jesus who actually gives him the key because Jesus has all of the authority in this place. And he allows Satan to open this pit for a period of time. It's a defined period of time and they are told uh, with, 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 and they're given authority and influence, but at the same time, their authority is limited. They aren't, able to infe- uh, they aren't able to affect the creation or able to affect those who are sealed. And of course, if there's one thing that this book is showing us over and over again is that God is sovereign. And what that means is that all of what happens in our world is under his control. The good and the bad, the times of blessing, the times of suffering, the times of gain, the times of loss, and we can say a lot of things about, the, about why things happen in our world, but the one thing we can't say after reading the book of Revelation is that God is not in control, that somehow God is asleep at the wheel, which also means that we can't get around the fact that all of these judgments that we are seeing in this book are actually sent by God. They don't happen outside of God's control. They're actually, uh, in contrast, they're sent by God. And even in this chapter, of course, Satan and his demons can only do what they do because God gives them authority to do it. And I think for some of us, this might be the most difficult part to trust God with, these ideas of judgment. I said last week that one of the reasons why many skeptics and non-believers can't believe in the God of the Bible or they don't want to believe in the God of the Bible is because they see a God who does these things and they decide to themselves, I can't believe in a God who does those kinds of things. And for some of us, even as Christians, the doctrine of God's judgment will test our faith more than anything else. I think in some ways, it's the part that we want to erase from the Bible. I know there's been times in my life uh, that if you were to give me the option of erasing pieces or parts of the Bible, I would go right to those judgment oracles and erase them because they're difficult to deal with, they're difficult to understand, and when we understand them for what they're saying, they are so difficult to stomach as far as the reality of what they mean and how they take place in the world, how they take root in the world. But of course, one thing we've been talking about is that God's judgment is necessary. And look, what makes God's judgment so brutal and so messy and yes, so violent in some cases is not because of God's judgment. It's not because of God's character. It's because of our sin. It's because of the fact that our sin has broken this good creation that God has created and God is doing everything to bring it back to a place where it is redeemed in the way that he intended it to be. And in order to do that, he has to get rid of sin and evil. And the thing about sin and evil is it's not just some concept out there. It's not just something that is outside of me and you that's just out in the world in some kind of nebulous way and detached way. Sin and evil resides directly in my heart and yours. And so the only way that we can stand in God's judgment is to be covered by the Lamb. Now what do we do with all this? Right? Here's the takeaway. I think one thing to focus on is that these judgment activities that happen around us, which remind us of the brokenness of creation, the burdensome weight that creation feels and has been feeling, plagues, famines, injustice, war, death, are actually signs of God's activity and not an absence of God. And these activities are designed to wake us up to deeper faith in God and to a deeper trust in his purposes and promises. I was re- it reminds me of a story I was reading uh, this past week 
read about this guy by the name of uh, Mark Mariano. And I don't know if that name uh, rings a bell to any of you, but Mark Mariano has this kind of unique job. And I guess depending on your perspective, it could either be an awesome job or <laughs> a really strange job. But uh, his job essentially, his full-time job, is to sit outside of a lake in Montana and to patrol a lake with a rifle. And uh, he shoots any birds, essentially, that land on that lake. Now, if you and I were to walk up to Mark without actually hearing an explanation for why he's doing what he's doing, we would think that this is the cruelest thing in the world, that he's shooting at birds that are landing on this lake in Montana. But if you dig a little deeper, you realize that what he's doing is actually saving these birds' lives. Because ultimately, that, that one-mile lake in Montana is actually toxic and very toxic to birds. So that if they sit there even beyond a few minutes, many of them will die just by sitting on the surface of that water. And so he gets out a rifle. Whenever he sees a bird uh, land on the water, he shoots next to the bird or around the bird to scare it so that the bird will get off the surface and fly away. And of course, in the end, all that he is doing that looks so awful (laughs) and that looks so uh, that looks so difficult, right, in, in that way, is actually, a way of sur- is actually a way of saving the lives of the birds and allowing them to survive. I think we can look at God's judgments in this world along, along the same lines. It's not like God is aiming some cosmic rifle at us and trying to scare us, but when we see these things, they're designed to get our attention, to warn us to something bigger and greater. And even though they may look... Uh, violent and difficult to take and difficult to understand in the end they're designed to wake us up and save our lives and save our eternal lives and when it comes to faith then what we have to do and this is a big one is to simply trust God's judgment not only trust God's judgment activity in this world but also trust God's judgment in terms of why he does what he does and what he considers to be good what he considers to be bad what he considers to be just and what he considers to be unjust I think the temptation for us often is to make this more complicated than it needs to be. We have God's scripture, but then we want more answers than God has told us that he is going to give us. Instead, what God tells us is to trust him. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why we spent so much time at the beginning of the book of Revelation talking about the centrality of Jesus. And I think this is why the book of Revelation is constructed this way. We see Jesus over and over and over again until we get to chapter 5, and he is the slain lamb who is on the throne. The focus is on Jesus from the very beginning because it's as if God is saying to us, do you want to know you can trust me? Here's how you can trust me, the slain lamb on your behalf. Do you want to know that I love you and that I am good? See Jesus, see the gospel, see the good news of the one who has laid down his life for you. Do you want to know that I'm worthy of your trust? Jesus is the answer to our doubts and our questions about this. And so we can trust God because he is good and he has a good plan. We can also trust God because he is wise. Now the season of Advent is all about telling us, uh, God, God telling us to trust him when he did it his own way. Think about, uh, I think about uh, the, the season of Advent, all that we celebrate all that we remember about the first incarnation of Jesus when we think about the first arrival of Jesus, what we realize and understand is that God did this in a way that nobody would have expected. <laughs> I mean, think about it from this standpoint, that God became a human being. I mean, that's big enough. Like, that confounds the wisdom of man. 
And then that Jesus was born in the way that he was born, grew up in the way that he grew up, taught what he taught during his earthly ministry, went to the cross and died the way that he did, and then was resurrected. All of those things confound the wisdom of man, but they are the wisdom of God. Reminds me when 1 Corinthians says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who don't believe it. But for those of us who do believe it, on this side of the cross, now that we see the story completed, we realize this is the power and the wisdom of God. Many of those who were there during Jesus' time couldn't recognize the wisdom of God and what he was doing, including the disciples. But we see it on this side as the wisdom of God. And so when it comes to biblical faith, there are two necessary pieces. There's both belief, but there is also trust. In other words, I can believe in God, but I can believe that there is a God, but I can still be in a place where I don't fully trust him. I can, be, I can believe that God is loving, wise, just, all of those things that we talked about earlier, but also not trust in God's goodness, love, wisdom, and justice. It's possible to believe in God and not actually have true faith. And the difference is the personal trust that comes from a relationship with God. Not just knowing that Jesus died on a cross historically somewhere in some place at some point, but also recognizing and trusting in the fact that Jesus died on the cross representing the love of God for salvation, for my salvation and for the salvation of his good creation. In talking about the wisdom of God, uh, many of you know that I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Tim Keller, who is an author and a pastor uh, in Manhattan. And Tim Keller, within the past couple of years, has come down with, uh, was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, uh, which if you're not familiar with that, is basically, it's essentially a death sentence. Um, Tim knows that he will die from this cancer unless there's some miracle of God that saves him. And uh, in, in his time of reflecting over the past couple of years about what this means for his life and faith, there's been a lot of things he's written, but uh, one of the things that he talks about is the different ways that we might react to news like this. I mean, if you were to imagine getting that kind of news, how would you yourself react? He says for one woman that he knew several years ago that had gotten terminal cancer, she said this, I'm not a believer anymore. That doesn't work for me. In other words, Christianity doesn't work for me. I can't believe in a personal God who would do something like this to me. And I know when it comes to the idea of the judgment of God, uh, we realize that there is someone that lo we love that comes to mind maybe, someone that we consider to be a good person, and we wonder whether that person will undergo the judgment of God in this way. And as we continue to think about it, it may cause us to have trouble believing in a personal God that would do something like this to them. But Keller says that there's another way to respond when we're tempted to lose faith in God and God's wisdom. And it comes back to just trusting in the fact that God is wise. And he says this, If there is a God great enough to merit your anger over the suffering you witness or endure, in other words, if there's a God great enough where we can look at him and say, God, you caused this thing to happen, or it was within your power to not allow this to happen. If we believe that there is a God who merits our anger in that way, then that God is also great enough to have reasons for allowing it to happen that we cannot understand. It's not logical to believe in an infinite God and still be convinced that you can tally the sums of good and evil as he does, or to grow angry that he doesn't always see things your way. So in other words, to believe in an infinite God, a God that's greater than me, and then to also at the same time say that I can make judgments on what is good and bad about what God does doesn't make any logical sense at all. It's a lot like a toddler trying to tell you how to spend your paycheck. I mean, imagine that for a minute, right? 
That's laughable because, first of all, that money doesn't belong to that toddler. And secondly, if you allowed a toddler to make a a decision about how you would spend your paycheck, they don't know anything about how to pay a mortgage and why you pay a mortgage or why you pay rent or why you'd have to buy groceries or why you'd have to pay for insurance and all those kinds of things, why you might have to save some of that money. At the end of the month, all you'd end up with is a bunch of toys and candy and no money left in your bank account. In very much the same way, Right? Us telling God how to spend his paycheck is, in some ways, laughable. At the same time, I will say this. Our concerns about God's judgment and how they affect uh, the world and how they affect people in our lives is not a shameful thing, especially when it comes from a desire to love people and for all people to experience the grace and mercy that we have personally received from God through Jesus. But, of course, one of the tragic truths that we have to grapple with is that not all will be saved. And again, this is not because of God's judgment, but it's because of our sin. And if we want to blame anything, we don't blame a God who is a holy God who extends us grace that we don't deserve. In reality, God doesn't owe us anything. The fact that he chooses to save any of us is a miracle of his grace and mercy, and we have to trust him with that. So what do we do? Well, I think the the takeaway for this is this should fuel urgency in, in the mission of the church. We should be praying fervently for everyone we know to come f- to faith in Jesus. And we should be sharing the good news even more than we already do, even if we face rejection and ridicule and persecution because of it. And with that thought, I want to close with this last story kind of a modern-day parable uh, written by writer uh, Greg Morrison. He, he talks about this picture of what this actually looks like as far as the mission of the church and the gospel and how it affects lives. And he says, one day there was a king in a kingdom, and uh, he had a servant with him, and one day as they were walking, they noticed a dense fog that had gathered around the kingdom. So dense and so far that it actually surrounded the kingdom and surrounded some of the roads out of the kingdom. And so uh, the king takes his servant, and he puts him right outside the fog at a fork in the road. And in this road, this this road forks to ten different paths in the road, But there's only one path that leads ultimately to the king and his kingdom. And so the king shows the servant where that path is, and he says to them, if you see anybody traveling on this road, be sure to tell them to travel down this road because it's the only one that leads to my kingdom. And I want them to be safe. I want them to be a part of my kingdom. I want to take care of them. I want to feed them. They're probably very hungry on their journey. But every other way, all the nine other paths lead to some kind of death or lostness. In some cases, the path might lead to a forest in which you enter that forest and you can never find your way out and you end up lost. And another path leads to a cliff. Another path leads to a path where there are wild animals roaming on each side of the road. Another path leads to a place where there are murderers and thieves on the side of the road that will attack anybody who comes along and so on and so forth. And so the servant sits there at the fork of the road waiting, anticipating any traveler who may come by so that he can direct them down the right path just as the king had instructed him. And sure enough, it's not long before a couple comes up to the fork of the road. The servant sees him, he jumps up, and he says, Hi friend, I want to tell you that the king has told me that there is one way to the kingdom and every other way is a way that leads to danger or death or, 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 or lostness. And the two look at each other, the man and the woman, the man who has a woman on his arm, and they look, they look at all the different paths in front of them, and they begin to talk, 
The woman whispers something in the man's ear and they decide to go down the path that leads to the forest and not to listen to the servant. And the servant chases them down the path and says, you guys are going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. This is the way to the kingdom. You're going to end up in a forest and you'll never find your way out. The couple doesn't listen to the servant and it's not long before they disappear into the fog and he never sees them again. So he runs back to the fork in the road and he sits down thinking to himself, what could I have said differently that would have convinced them to go down the right path? Sits there for a couple hours and he has another chance because here comes a woman walking by herself down the road and he says to the woman, look, there is one way to the kingdom. It's this path. The king has told me to tell anybody who comes along this road that this is the path to the kingdom. Every other way leads to danger and possibly death. The woman looks at the road and realizes that it's narrow and it looks dangerous from her perspective. And so she says to the servant, thank you for your advice, but I'll be okay and I'm going to continue this way. And she ends up on the road where there are wild animals on each side. And as she disappears into the fog, the servant hears the wild animals and never sees her again. He returns back to the fork in the road again, dejected, depressed over what he's seen. And there is one couple left who he sees walking down the road. They come to him and they're talking loudly in many different ways and he kind of interrupts their conversation. He says, whoa, before you go down that road, come here, I, I gotta tell you something. The king who loves all people and wants all people to be a part of his kingdom, he has given, a, there, there is this one way to his kingdom that, he want, that, he, that he's told me to tell everybody to walk down. Every other place and every other way leads to danger and destruction. And he's told me to tell you and to warn you because he loves you. And they look at him and say, the king loves us. How intolerant. How ridiculous. Because love allows you to do whatever you want. Love does not demand a way. And so we'll go this way, thank you very much. And they end up going the way of the robbers and the thieves and the murderers. And as he sees them disappear into the fog, he never sees them again. Now, obviously, the spiritual connection to that story is pretty obvious. But the question that I want to leave you with this, this morning is, where are you in that story? Are you the servant who's been called to warn and to direct and to show people the one way to the king and his kingdom? And despite what you may face and despite the rejection and despite the heartache that you may experience, Will you continue sharing the message of the straight path to the kingdom, the good news of the king? Maybe you're a traveler this morning and you've arrived at a fork in the road in some ways in your spiritual life and you're not sure which way to go. You're not sure which path to follow. You've heard those who may tell you that you have to walk this one certain path and for some reason it, it doesn't sit right with you. But at the same time, you realize that all the paths that you've walked down so far in your life have led to danger and destruction and lostness, and darkness. Wherever you may be this morning, as we talk about faith, you know, one of the things about faith is we're told in Scripture to ask for faith, <laughs> to actually ask for faith. So there's some of this where, yes, it is us trusting God, but it's also a gift that God gives us, faith that he allows us to have. And so no matter where you're at this morning, what I want to pray for you this morning is that your faith in Jesus would go, grow deeper, that your faith would grow deeper no matter where you're at this morning. That God would show himself even more to you to be good and wise and loving and faithful and that your faith would increase. That you'd be able to see those things clear as day. 
as a result of the faith that God gives us. So as we close this morning, join me in praying that God would give us the gift of faith. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we know that a lot of what we have read and encountered is confusing today. <laughs> what if we, uh, Lord, in some ways, uh, it, it confounds us. Um, maybe it scares us. Uh, maybe it causes us to reject it as fairy tales and meaningless words. But Lord, I pray that you would give us faith this morning to see these words and to see uh, your word and what you communicate to us as good and gracious and as true. Lord, we need faith to see uh, what it is that you see and what it is that you're doing in this world. And at the place where, where, where our understanding stops and is limited, we ask for faith to understand and to trust you with what your business is all about, with your wisdom and with your goodness. We ask that you would give us a childlike faith that trusts in spite of our fears, uh, that trusts in spite of our doubts and our objections, and so that we would see Jesus as he clearly is the one who was slain on our behalf, the one who laid down his life so that we would truly have hope. And not just the kind of hope that, uh, um, that satisfies in the moment, but hope that holds the assurance of things for eternity. We pray for all of us who are hurting this morning, all of us who are confused, who are dealing with things that are, we feel like are insurmountable. I pray we would rest in the sovereignty and the goodness of the Lord who has gone before us and of the one who is making all things new. May your grace and mercy rest upon us this morning, Lord. May we see it through the eyes of faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you for being here with us uh, today. Um, as we as we close and wrap up, a couple things want want to make you aware of. First of all, we have our prayer partners. Deborah Berry is over there today as one of our prayer partners. And if you need prayer as you leave here this morning, we know there's a lot of things that are going on. As we said earlier, it's a heavy time of year, and so realize that. So we are here to pray with you and help support you as a community. Another way that we pray for you is if we have prayer request cards that are located on the table in the back. Uh, with the cross on it. So as you go back there, if you want to fill out a prayer request card, drop it in the offering stand. As you leave, we make sure that gets to our prayer team, our staff, and we pray over those things every single week. And so it's our opportunity and privilege to join with you in prayer in that way. Thanks, y'all. Have a great afternoon. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.